0: Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand, Upgrade your arsenal.
1: On today's podcast, we have Jared Schaefer on the line. He's a past guest and a good friend of mine. Even though he's located out in West Virginia, we end up seeing each other a fair amount through work with Tethered. Jared has had an absolutely phenomenal season, shooting five bucks across various states, plus filming each of his family members filling tags, plus shooting a giant Sika stag, and a Bobcat, Jared and I discuss some of the specifics of his hunts, but also dive into what, if anything, he did differently this year to see so much success compared to years past. Before we dive in a quick note about Spartan Forge, which is an app that I'm using all the time for both mapping and hunt intel. I can look at historical weather and wind information, upcoming forecast details, machine learning based movement prediction, common browse types in an area, The app allows me to add journaling entries that automatically pair up with the weather info for that date, time, and location, and I can use the mapping functionality to navigate in the field, manage waypoints and tracks, look at property boundaries, and view satellite and topo layers to efficiently and effectively aid in e-scouting. Use the discount code DIY to save some money on a Spartan Forge membership. What have you been up to lately?
2: Oh, not a whole lot. Trying to take it easy after, uh, after season's been out, but I actually got out. I'm a scouting today, so I'm already back into it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yep. It's same same thing here.
1: Uh, I have been taking it out a little bit lighter the last couple of weeks, uh, partially because I've been buried in like design stuff. I've been trying to yeah. do as much of that as possible the last couple of weeks here, but uh, it's it's been good. And we got a lot of snow, and it's been super cold here also. So yeah, I'll probably make it a point to get out and cover some miles before the snow really changes. So I can get yeah. a good idea for late season next year. Uh, but then I'll wait till a lot of that snow melts to really start putting in a lot of miles.
2: Yeah, that's that's the reason I went out today. Because we've had snow on the ground for, you know, a few, well, a week or so. And uh, we got more snow yesterday. So I wanted to check a couple areas out and figure out where the deer are at. <clears throat> and uh, I actually found, I, I jumped up two bucks that were bedded. Um, one still had both sides and the other had already shed. But um, I didn't spook them, and they they just hung around there, and I watched them for a while. and I just backed out, so I didn't spook them, but I'll go back in there and hopefully try to pick up those sh- sheds here in a couple weeks or so.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's been about 50-50, I think, here, too. Some bucks are, are still holding, some bucks have fully shed, and then there's some walking around that are partials.
2: Yeah, it's a little early yet to be putting on too many miles, so I'm just kind of waiting.
1: <laughs> yeah. I haven't done a whole lot of shed hunting in the past. I mean, I, like I've done it, but it's always been more toward like, oh, I'm going to go scout. And if I happen to almost step on a shed, cool, I'll pick it up.
2: But I've never really, yeah.
1: whenever I've intentionally tried to look
2: for sheds, I've never done that great at it. Yeah. Yeah. I never find them when I'm actually looking <laughs> for them. I'm usually doing something else. Um, I like, I found one, we were driving down the road the other day and I spotted one on the side of the road that I, he, I guess he had just lost it and I, I grabbed that one, but um. Yeah, I always find them when I'm not looking.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, we found like two or three just in hunting season this year, from like the prior spring. Yeah, and that was. I mean, usually you find like one maybe throughout the entire season. So that was that was kind of cool. A couple nice ones too. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's that's pretty good.
1: <clears throat> so, so remind me if I if I've got this right for you. You start out the season in North Dakota, and then you go back yeah. home to West Virginia you shoot a buck there then your wife Amanda shoots one and your daughter Autumn and then you go seeking a hunting and shoot what you know we can get into this later but might be a state record um seek a deer and then you shoot yeah. a buck on public in Indiana and then a real nice 8 on public in Ohio or was it at least either, either one it was a private yeah then your son Austin shot one and yep. then you shot another West Virginia buck that was a giant, especially for that area of West Virginia that you're in. Yeah. And then a Pennsylvania gun buck and yeah. and a, a doe in that uh, flintlock or traditional season. Yeah, yeah. heritage season, yep. <clears throat> Did I miss anything? I feel like this is an awfully long list for one year.
2: <laughs> um, the only thing you missed was California, but I, I didn't even really oh, that's right. out there. So. Yeah, because yeah. of the fire. I remember that. That sucked. Yeah. All we, that, all that yeah, traveling. Yeah, we, we were basically there for 10 days, and we got to hunt for like a day and a half. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was kind of a bummer, but yeah, we won't count that one since I didn't really get to put in the effort that I wanted to. Was there a favorite out of uh, those out of those hunts that you had? Ah, man, it's tough because there were so many good hunts. The, the Sika hunt was probably my favorite of the year, but... um. Man, I don't know. It's just so many different types of hunts and different tactics. So it's really hard to pick a, one. Um, I really enjoyed the late season Pennsylvania hunt with a rifle on public. That I had a ton of fun doing that. And, uh, you know, we can get into that. But, man, yeah, it's hard to pick one because they were all really good. <laughs> and, I mean, that
1: historically is not an easy season to have success in. People, no. people talk about Michigan having a lot of bow hunters, but Pennsylvania's like it, it lasts to check the numbers. I think Pennsylvania's got the more or the higher number of gun hunters compared to any other
2: state. Yeah, and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to do it, because everybody talks about how many people there are and how impossible it is to kill buck on public land. So I kinda of took that as a challenge. And I out two evenings and I had an encounter with a really good ten pointer the first evening. And he was busted off on one side, so I passed him up. And then my second sit, I killed that, that nice eight. So I'm kind of hooked on hunting up there. Like, I'm really excited about getting back up there.
1: Yeah, when I was out there for, for basically just a long weekend, it's really cool terrain. I imagine that it's probably not too dissimilar from where you're at in West Virginia. But it's, it's yeah. you know, more or less, we don't have really anything that's exactly the same around here. You know, the hills are a little bit steeper or we got more of the flatter land. The tree type is not exactly the same. So it was kind of cool to be able to see that different habitat right. type out there.
2: Yeah, it's a fun place to hunt. And there's a lot of public land. Oh, um, yeah. You know, and it's, you know, you can get way back in away from people. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Did you do anything, I guess, different as like a global strategy
1: this year versus, say, years past? Like, do you think it was just the stars aligned this year? Or did you – was there some mindset or
2: difference in strategy that you did, like, just generally throughout the year? Well, the stars definitely had to align somewhat for me to pull off what I did. But I I would – looking back – I was kind of looking back on the season, you know, the past week or so, just thinking about things. And I would say, for me, the biggest difference this year was doing all-day sits, going out before daylight, and kind of scouting my way in like not picking a destination um to go to like right off the bat like I would hike back into a spot and not really have any particular in mind and scout my through the evening hunt and set where I thought the best spot would be and uh something I did different this year is I took my boil with me with a freeze dried meal and eat, you know get out super early um Start hiking, get way back in there, and I would just spend the whole day. I would, I wouldn't come back in, and I think that really uh, helped on a couple of my hunts this year for sure. We can get into that on on specifics, but um, yeah, just going deep, getting in places that people weren't getting to, and uh, just staying the whole day. So I'd say that's probably the biggest difference you know this past year.
1: And that seems to also go hand in hand with having a lot of land to roam. You know, like if you, for instance, we're were targeting a bunch of little, you know, 100 to 400 acre pieces. Like it's harder to do that versus if you got, you know, 50,000 acres, you can kind of pick and choose. Which, I mean, a lot of places you hunt have that opportunity available. It's one of the things that I like about hunting in northern Wisconsin, too, is that you've got enough land to go and roam and get away from people. And if you're, yeah. you're bumping in a lot of hunters, it just means that like you, you can go find someplace else and go spend
2: some time out there and it, it definitely exists. Yeah. And that's really what I focused on was trying to find areas like in all of my aerial scouting that I was doing. Um, I was really trying to find spots that I thought people weren't going to, and that definitely paid off in Pennsylvania. Um, but it, as well as my the, the big one I shot in West Virginia, I think it, it paid off there as well. But, yeah, that definitely made a huge difference this, this season.
1: Yeah, and would you say, like, every hunt, are you doing e-scouting ahead of time to try and pick, like, good potential spots or maybe, like, good potential areas? And then once you've done that e-scouting, you go back into that area and then let the sign kind of dictate – where you were going to set up for that day, or were there times where you just went into the woods without even really looking at the map? You're like, oh, I know there's a bunch of land out here, and we'll see what it looks like.
2: Uh, I always try to get a pretty good idea of what I'm going to, and I'm trying to identify certain things um, beforehand, so I kind of have an idea going in. I'm not going in completely blind. And, you know, I'll still do that sometimes, but I'm almost always, you know, looking at on X or spark forge or whatever, just trying to figure out, um, what exactly the, not only the terrain, but the, the cover types and the positions and stuff like that. So if I can figure that out ahead of time, I'm usually better off. Do you
1: find yourself looking more for terrain features or more for like transitions and vegetative
2: cover or just totally situation dependent? Uh, it, it just depends. I mean, yeah, definitely both. And if I can get an area that has, um, you know, a couple different things, you know, if it has terrain and the cover change, um, anytime I can find a spot that has two or three, it always stacks it in your favor. I feel like. So kind of the more, the merrier,
1: the more diversity, I guess, of features combined with maybe yeah. a place that's harder to get to.
2: Yep. Absolutely.
1: And then Wind wise, you, you hunt, I think, generally, areas that have more topography than I do. So how yeah. much how much just kind of knowing the the micro specifics of what the wind and thermals are gonna do? How much does that play into your e scouting and then also when you're actually out in the woods, or if you're just doing scouting loops, are you afraid of blowing your scent into certain areas
2: while you're just covering ground looking for sign? Yeah, so you know, when I'm looking at maps, I'm trying to figure out where I'm gonna go, I'm always taking wind into consideration. Um you know, potential bedding based on wind, how I can access it without blowing the whole area out. Um, so I kind of make my best guess, um, while I'm, uh, you know, e-scouting. And then once I get boots on the ground, I confirm it. And then if it's doing something different, I try to adjust and, you know, make sure I'm entering the area without, uh, you know, blowing out where I think the deer is going to be bedding at. So it's kind of a fly by the seat of your pants type of deal most times, but, um, you know, I to it as close as I can.
1: And I guess in regards to especially, you know, kind of knowing where the deer are at in terms of their daytime bedding locations and how that leads to a setup. And when we did our last podcast, we did that hunt breakdown when you basically did a, a setup toward a, an older mature bucks bedding area and it was a mm-hmm. successful hunt. Were most of the deer that you had, um, I guess specifically in West Virginia, because I think those were more early-season hunts, uh, at least the first couple, yeah. that, like you and, and your wife and and kids. Are those generally bed hunts as well, or are you setting up more on, like, food sources adjacent to bedding, like oak flats or, or something like that?
2: Yeah, um, usually food sources that are right on the edge of bedding, um, usually acorns. Um, and definitely, let's see, the, the buck I killed a that bedding. But he came from a different area that I wasn't expecting. The wind just missed him on, like, just an off wind. And uh, I got lucky on that one. And then the buck that my wife killed was, was kind of the same deal, kind of an off wind. Um, and then the buck that my son killed, it was actually kind of more of a rut funnel. And uh, that, that was a crosswind as well. So <laughs> um, I guess that's one you know uh, consistent thing is i see a lot of movement on a crosswind like that coming out of bedding
1: crosswind for the deer like they're blowing the wind's blowing yeah. from like left ear to right ear as they're walking out of that bedding area yeah yeah a lot of times does that sometimes mean too that they're betting there on a, a wind that's not necessarily leeward i mean are they betting on on points yeah. and knobs in, in some of those areas or are they betting lower down on the hills
2: I see it both ways. Um, but it's, you know, they're definitely not always betting leeward. You know, I definitely see them bed in areas where the wind isn't necessarily perfect for them, but they may have some other advantage. Like they've got a better sight advantage spot, um, you know, hearing advantage, I guess you could say, but you know, they're still betting with the wind. It's, you know, pretty much in their favor, but, you know, maybe not a hundred percent. So I do see that a good bit. You see deer
1: bedding in certain areas. Sometimes it's a sight advantage. Sometimes it's a, maybe a hearing advantage. Sometimes it truly is a wind advantage and using the thermals and the wind more than their other senses. And mm-hmm. it, it seems like definitely on those early season hunts around here, you might notice that on some of those oak flats adjacent to bedding, Maybe sometimes deer will come and hit those things at like 10 a.m., 2 in the afternoon, obviously right at the last light. It it seems like you can get, especially if there's no human intrusion back there, you can get deer movement at
2: a lot of times throughout the day. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually looking through um, kind of the times when I killed all these deer this year. And I killed almost all of them over an hour before dark um, a lot of times like an hour and a half before dark so you know when you get that close to bedding um, and you get in there without them knowing you're there like they're getting up pretty early you know if you're especially if you're in a you know pretty unpressured spot you know I saw a lot of times those deer were up and moving super early yeah that's interesting
1: was it the same way with some of your hunts that were later towards the towards the rotten end of those firearm seasons.
2: Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Um, so just to put it into context, every deer that I shot this, this season and the ones that my family shot were in the evening, we didn't kill any in the morning. Um, and all the ones that I killed, even in later season, and even during the Pennsylvania rifle hunts, I was seeing all those deer at like four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I shot mine at four o'clock the day before I'd seen that other one right at four o'clock. So, um, you know, this is public land. So these deer, you know, they're still getting up and moving. Um, I guess you just got to get far enough back to where they're, you know, they're not too worried about it, but I thought that was pretty interesting that even late in the season that, that they were up moving that early.
1: Yeah, that is really interesting. I know around here, and I'm sure it's the same thing around you. If you're hunting in places where maybe there is a little bit more pressure, or like they're, you know, you're you're too close to the pressure, not close enough to where they want to be to get away from it. The evenings always seem like they're dead in those gun seasons. It's like you get all the movement in the morning and then a little bit more at midday when people are getting up and and moving around, and then it's almost like that evening is just like dead. So often yeah. more more than not. Um but but yeah, definitely. I can remember a couple of hunts over the years where it was just in the right spot, and those deer were just, you know, it was in like heavy cover, and you just saw yep. a lot of deer just generally moving it at, at all times throughout the day. It was almost like, it was almost like fishing in, in a certain sense. It's like, you know, it's, yeah. it, walleye fishing sometimes is really good at dawn and dusk. But then there's some lakes yep. where you'll just, you know, you'll catch them kind of spread throughout the day, pick one up about once an hour or, t- you know, twice an hour or whatever. And it seemed like it was kind of the same in some of those deer hunts where it's just like, oh, well, it, it seems like you're always constantly in the action because you go like 45 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever. It's like, oh, there's another one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it just takes, you know, getting far enough and getting to where they're comfortable moving in daylight. And, uh yeah, I just found that really interesting because, you know, usually you're shooting them right at the edge of dark or whatever. But, you know, all the ones that I was seeing, you know, it was it was well before dark. So I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting.
1: And on the Pennsylvania hunt, was that one, the first time you had been back in that area that
2: you hadn't pre-scouted that at all, right? So I had been in that area like three or four years ago. Um, I hadn't been in that exact spot, but I had been like kind of close to it. And, you know, I knew that it should hold some pretty good deer. You know, there was always good sign in there. And, uh, you know, since I shot my big one in West Virginia, I didn't have a tag here but I had a Pennsylvania tag. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go try it. So, you know, I started e-scouting a little bit more and, you know, just trying to find um, basically what I was looking for was where several ridge points dumped into a Creek bottom that was, you know, well away from any road. So I found two areas where three different Ridge points dumped into a Creek bottom. It was really steep, nasty terrain. And both of the spots were, over a mile Um, the one was a mile and a quarter and the other one was a mile and a half so you know i'm looking at the all the the access points for the public and those spots were the farthest from the road that that basically i could get so um that's pretty much what i was targeting was just those super steep um creek bottoms where where all those different ridge points were so i kind of figured that you know based on the wind that those deer would be bedded on one of those points and would potentially cross, you know, headed up to the, to the next ridge or whatever, looking for food. But, um, that actually worked out perfect and, on both sits. So,
1: so were you sitting in the bottom, the actual Creek bottom itself
2: then? Not in the bottom, but pretty far down the ridge point where I could see, um, I can see the bottom and I can see, like were the the ends of each point, basically. So I was just kind of positioning myself where I could shoot maybe 80 yards or so with a gun. Um, And that, you know, that worked out pretty good.
1: And were you on, if you have multiple ridge points that you could choose from, were you setting up on the one that was more leeward?
2: So kind of drawing it out here as I'm thinking about it. So the one, the first evening that I set up, I was not on the leeward point, but I was on the point that the wind was blowing, um, basically across. So, so,
1: so if a deer here. was in the Creek bottom, you'd be, you know, more quote unquote safe. Cause you had the rising thermals and the wind right. coming out of that Creek bottom.
2: Right. So where I was at, there was a Ridge point coming out of the West headed toward the East. And then there was a Ridge point right above that coming from the North. And then another one across from that coming from the east, basically. And hopefully this makes sense. But with a west wind, I figured they would be on the point, you know, facing toward the east. And then I was on the ridge point coming from the north. So the wind was kind of coming across the point that I was on. Okay. And and the buck that I saw, he came off of that leeward point across the creek and then came up the ridge point that I was on. And he did eventually get my wind, but – You know, I could have killed him 10 times before he got there, but um, he was traveling up that ridge point on a crosswind.
1: Okay. And did you find any other hunter sign in there at all?
2: So I did closer. There was kind of a field up top on the very top of the ridge, and there had definitely been some people hunting that field, but to get where I was at was probably another maybe not quite a half a mile, and you had to drop off pretty steep elevation to get down in there. But it it didn't look like anybody had pushed back in as far as I had been.
1: Okay, so access into this drainage area was from generally like higher ground you had to drop in there versus being able to kind of walk up the creek itself?
2: Yeah, yeah, I actually I swung around this ridge and there's a bench that um, basically travels the lower third you know, above the Creek. So that morning I went in before daylight and I set up on the field where I could watch the field and, uh, it got daylight. There wasn't any deer in the field. So I just slowly worked my way back onto that bench. And I had those, that Ridge point in mind, you know, for the evening hunt. So I basically still hunted my way back in there. And I think I got in there right at noon and, uh, I basically set up for the rest of the afternoon on that ridge point, and the buck that I saw he was the only deer that I saw, but you know that's really all you're looking for is just that one deer that's a good one, but um if he wouldn't have been broken off, he probably would have been north of one forty. He was a nice buck, but it it hurt to pass him up <laughs> he was busted yeah. off right above his brow, so i had to let him walk so that
1: <laughs> i remember you showed that <laughs> I, I felt, that, that yeah. picture looking looking kind of through the scope and was like holy cow <laughs> like, yeah i hope he shot that yeah, one so I, didn't realize he even had had half a rack
2: yeah yeah so i felt good about the hunt because it all went the way i wanted it to it just you know i didn't want to shoot a half rack buck so we let him walk but hopefully he'll be in there this next year and i can find him again was that just a nightmare getting that deer out of there then the one that I shot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, yeah, that was one of the rougher pack outs. You know, I, I took taking my frame pack with me, you know, with plans to, to quarter them out. And that's what I did. And I, I, I ended up getting stuck in a, in a really steep, nasty ditch that had a bunch of blowdowns in it. I thought that I could go down the ditch and it would be a shortcut. <laughs> I got down in the ditch with a hundred pounds on my back and I couldn't get up out of there. It was, a, yeah, it was not fun. <laughs>
1: There's one thing I've learned is that a shortcut is never really a shortcut if you're trying to take it in the yeah. dark. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about this West Virginia gun hunt then. Cause, I mean, this that was like for that area of West Virginia, from what I understand, that was like a tremendous buck, like one that you like have been trying to to
2: get for years and years and years. Yeah. So I mean. I'm not big on scores or anything like that i mean this this buck scored one fifty three which for this is northern West Virginia big woods. there's no ag there's no you know nothing really they these deer live on browse. so to kill a hundred and fifty three inch buck up here, I mean, I've been hunting my whole life i'm thirty five I've never seen a buck that big up here, so when I saw that thing, it kind of took my breath away to be honest, I just couldn't even believe it but um, the story of that buck is actually pretty cool because, um, so I had never hunted this piece of property and a friend of mine from church, she just randomly one day says, Hey, my family has some property in this area. She was like, you know, if you want to hunt it, go ahead and hunt it. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'm always looking for new places to hunt, not just out of the blue. She offers up her property. So I went out and I scouted it one day. I just walked the whole property. It was right at a hundred acres. But it bordered a ton of land, just nothing but big woods. So it had some good terrain features on it, some good cover, um, some nice, a a really nice hardwood ridge back in there. And the one thing I noticed when I was started e-scouting it it was there was a uh, a saddle in the top of this ridge that was all white oaks, and that saddle backed up to the leeward side of the ridge, which was super thick. I'm like, man, that saddle back in there it has to be good. Like, there's no way it can't be good. So I walked back there. I scouted it. I think it was in mid-November. It was still during bow season. And I found some really good sign. There was some some big rubs back there, chest-high rubs. And I figured there was a good buck in there. So I put out two cameras. And I think the first night that I put the cameras out, I got a really nice ten pointer on camera, probably mid one thirties, maybe one forty, like a really nice buck. And you know, I was I was excited because I I was going to target that deer. So I didn't get any more pictures, and it had a couple small bucks, but nothing nothing real big. So, um, the day before opening day of rifle season, I got a picture of a buck that had broke off half of his rack, and I thought that it was that buck. I'm like, oh man, that kind of stinks. You know, there's probably not another big one in there to go after besides him. Uh So, so I almost didn't go, but the night before season, I saw we were going to get a wind switch and we were going to get like a straight north wind, northwest wind, which would make this property or this ridge in this property, the leeward side, which it's usually not the leeward side with our predominant wind. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try it. I'm going to just go back there and just see what happens. Maybe there's another buck in there. So I, this was another one of those hunts where I took my jet boil with me, freeze dried meal. I'm like, I'm just going to go out and sit all day. So, um, there was a power line right away, kind of close to the entrance of the property. And it was a safe spot to get to in the morning based on the wind. So I was like, I'm just going to go sit that spot, see what I see. And then I'm going to work my way back to that saddle for the evening hunt. So I sat on the right away, actually passed up two smaller bucks that morning and I saw like eight or nine does. I don't know. It was, it was a good morning. The deer were really moving, but it got to be 10 o'clock or so. I hadn't seen anything else. So I packed up and started kind of working my way back out this ridge. And, uh, I kind of, there's this, the side of this ridge has several different benches on it and I hadn't been on a couple of them. So I kind of started up high on the ridge and there wasn't much sign, so I started dropping down, and kind of checking each bench as I dropped down the ridge. And it seemed like the the bench that was like the lower third had all the sign on it. There was tons of rubs and old scrapes. So I kind of worked my way out that bench and I got set up where I could see the saddle above me. And then there was a bench behind me and I got, I got set up on a tree in my saddle. I was just on ground level, but it just gives me a spot to sit. So I got set up and I just happened to look behind me and there was a fresh scrape like 20 yards from me. Like it had just been made probably that morning. I was like, Oh, that's pretty interesting. Cause I hadn't seen any other fresh scrapes. So sitting there, I think it was at four o'clock. It was early. It wasn't even close to dark yet. I just happened to look behind me and I saw the right side of this buck. He's walking down that bench coming right to me and pulled the gun up and i saw him you know just about took my breath away because i saw how big he was and as soon as he stepped out in the open i shot and luckily i made a good shot on him and he went down right there and uh i couldn't when i got down there to him, i just couldn't even believe it like it didn't even seem real to shoot a deer that big i mean you know he's a mainframe 10 he's got 12 inch g2s 11 inch g3s um all of his tons are bladed. Like he's just an awesome looking buck. Like he's the coolest looking 10 pointer I'll probably ever kill. So <laughs> it was just, uh, that, that's yeah, awesome. And I had no, I, yeah. And I had no idea that that deer was there. Like I had no pictures of him. Um, you know, just no clue that he was even there. So that was really, really cool.
1: And, and just to make sure I got that, that setup right. That was on the side of the Ridge where it was, cause you had one side of the Ridge and the saddle that was more open one side that was more thick, and these these benches that you went and uh, scouted down on and eventually set up on, that was on the thicker side or the open side?
2: No, it was on the more open side, but there was still, you know, a lot of green briar and stuff like that. So it was it's still fairly thick, but it's not like
1: open hardwood. But normally, I guess the common wind direction would have the thicker side being leeward but this particular right. day was the opposite
2: and that's why you had confidence going into that side yep exactly and that's that's the only reason that i ended up hunting that spot that day was because it was it was leeward for that
1: day how big of an elevation change is it from like the i guess the top to the bottom of that ridge
2: uh i think it's like 600 feet it's a really really steep big ridge like it's yeah it's really steep it's yeah it's interesting because
1: there's there's some stuff that I've e-scouted that is more, it's not mountains. Uh, It's not like what you guys have out there. Um, It's obviously not like what we have in the Rockies, but it's like more elevation change than what I'd have in the Midwest. You know, even the steepest stuff you find in the Midwest is like along the Mississippi river for the most part. And a lot of times it's like three, maybe 400 feet elevation change between the top and the bottom, but it's pretty steep. Um, But there's some other places I've e-scouted and you see these, these drainage or, or hill systems where, like you just said, 600, 500, could be 700 feet. Yeah. And you look at the topo lines and it's like, yeah, there's a bench here, 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 here. It's like, how do you know, like, you know, which one yeah. is the the one to set up on? It makes e-scouting somewhat daunting because of just how many potential setups there could
2: be. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you something else that I, I started using this year, and I don't know if you've seen it or not, but on, on X they have acorn-producing, layer on there I don't know if you've seen that or not
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I was kind of skeptical of it at first I'm like how could they possibly know where the oaks are and all that I don't know if they do um, different aerial studies or well, I don't know how they get it but I actually found it to be really accurate and on you know in, in big woods like I hunt um, it's kind of hard to see sometimes where the transition lines are at but with that layer I could see where like the, the hardwoods are still standing, but then it backs up to like a logged out area and there's there's no oaks in there. So I'm finding a lot of the these spots by looking at that layer and seeing where it backs up to a thicker area like it's been logged out huh. know, maybe twenty, thirty years ago. <clears throat> so that actually really helped me this year, which was I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, that is that is really intriguing how like like you said, how can they know? Did you say it was? Yeah. Would you say it was accurate in the context of like that said there'd be oaks here and there are regardless of whether they're producing, or is it like it says yeah. there's going to be acorn producing trees here and they actually have
2: acorns on them like it's you know,
1: yeah, <laughs> that would right. be insane. So it,
2: yeah, so it doesn't give you that kind of detail, but it shows you where like you know standing mature oak trees are at. So that's you know that's a help right there. I thought so. I yeah. thought that was pretty pretty interesting, but it's actually more accurate than you'd think it would be. Huh. I'll have to check that out. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I just found it. So, from a firearms season perspective, great hunt in Pennsylvania, great hunt in West Virginia, and Early season was just, it was like, it seemed like every time I picked up my phone, Jared was sharing <laughs> another picture that somebody in the Schaefer household had shot another deer. <laughs> and
2: yeah, I mean, we were, we were knocking them down
1: <laughs> and, and it's like, that wasn't all you had that Sika hunt or Sika, Sika, I guess it, what do the people out there call it? How do they pronounce it?
2: They say Sika. So that's what okay. I <laughs> And the Bobcat. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about the Bobcat which um, that's funny because that spot that where I shot the Bobcat was a funnel that I have overlooked for years, this area that I've hunted, I've hunted here my whole life. And it, it just kind of clicked one day. I was like, that is a funnel right there. And I've never even hunted it. So the first night that I hunted it, um, the buck that my son ended up shooting walked right past me or he was chasing does. And then that evening I shoot it, shoot this giant Bobcat, which I've always wanted to shoot one of those things. So I kind of used that hunt as an observation sit. And then, um, you know, like two days later, we had the same weather conditions, same wind, everything. And so my son was able to go with me. So we went back to that same spot and that, that's buck did the same exact thing that he did the day that I hunted it and he ended up killing him right there. So <laughs> I thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah, that is <laughs> super cool.
2: And that Seca hunt,
1: I, it's always hard for me to judge um like how, the size of them just because i don't see that many of them i don't know how to to judge what like is a big or small you know yeah, yeah. one of those species and, and i guess it you know just depends there's a lot of variance depending on like which state you're in and which like sub area you're in of their range that they have out in that chesapeake bay area but that one that you shot that was like borderline state record right
2: so i i'm not exactly sure still how to score those daggone things um So I don't think it's a state record, but I mean, it's, it's up there. Like it's, you know, it's, I'm probably never going to kill a bigger one than that. So (laughs) to me, it's, it's huge. You know, they told me it's like shooting a 200 inch whitetail basically, which is insane. But um, yeah, they're a little bit bigger than I thought that they were. I thought, I thought they were smaller um, going into that hunt. The one I shot, he weighed 102 pounds, you know, and he was a big rutted up, you know, mature stag. But you know, it's comparable to a whitetail. I would say it's probably like a year old doe, maybe year and a half old doe. Is that around here at least? Is that a hundred pound live weight or hundred pound um, dressed? Trying to think, it was one or two dressed. Okay, that's what he was. Yep, that sounds
1: that sounds about right, even for up here. You know, a big doe for us is like one thirty dressed.
2: Yeah. So it's like shooting a, you know, a medium sized doe. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. It it does seem like they're, it does seem like they're smaller when you look at the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about like, how did that play
2: out? Yeah. So, um, our friends, uh, Billy and his dad, um, they had just bought this property, um, a year or so ago. They haven't even like hunted in a full year, I don't think. So they, they're not really, they don't really know where the best spots are at on this place. So they invited the, the tethered crew up and uh, I think there was four of us hunting that, that week. Um, they kind of just pointed us in the general area and said, you know, we think this is a good spot, you know, go sit it and see what happens. And if you see sign and need to move, like, you know, just you know, do your thing. So um, I went in kind of hunting it like I would hunt a whitetail. I mean, we went in um, kind of on the edge of this marsh, and tons of sign like tons and tons of sign. so i put a couple of days into that spot and only saw one small stag like that was the only thing i saw and uh the other guys were all sitting on the edge of a really big marsh like they could see five six hundred yards and they were seeing all kinds of sika that were chasing and you know bugling and doing all the rutting things so um but they just weren't getting close to them. They weren't coming out of the, out of the marsh. Yeah. So you know, it got to be close to the, well, it was the last day. And uh, he asked me, he was like, you know, do you want to go try a different spot just to see something different? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know what I'm doing is not really panning out. So he kind of pointed me in the direction of this marsh and said, you know, just scout your way back in there and, and pick a spot. So uh, we worked our way back in there and uh, I was looking at them at the, at the map and the wood line that meets the marsh was pretty much a straight line, but in the middle of it, there was kind of a little point, like a subtle point that jutted out into the marsh. And then straight across from that is the main channel of water and the main channel of water kind of bend, bends in toward the land. And it kind of creates a pinch in the marsh. That's maybe 40 yards wide. Uh If you're on the tip of the point, if you know, you only got about a 40 yard shot to the deeper water. So I figured if something was chasing or you know they were running up and down that wood wood line that they would come in range right there in that spot so we kind of set up right on the edge of that point looking out into the marsh and we had kind of a crosswind that was coming out of the woods blowing into the marsh but it was blowing just enough off to the side that you know, I figured if they were bedded on one side, we'd be okay. If they were bedded on the lower side, you know, they're obviously going to bust us. But it's the last night, so we're just going to try it and see what happens. But um, we got set up, and we had only been in the tree maybe a half hour. And I see antler tips sticking up out of the grass. And I'm looking at it to my binos, and I'm like, man, that's a whitetail. Like, it has to be a whitetail. And uh, I got to looking at it a little bit closer, and it was that – that stag i'm like holy cow that thing is a giant and he was kind of working his way away from us in the marsh and uh i remember that i had an elk reed in my backpack and i don't know why i even had this in there like i haven't even been elk hunting but i bought this reed just to mess with and i had it in my pack (laughs) so i pulled i pulled the elk reed out and i just threw out a couple you know like cow mews the best i could it didn't sound very good but And he whipped his head around and was looking our direction. And then he just disappeared. Like he got in that high grass and I just couldn't see him anymore. And he was gone. I'm like, ah, he's probably, you know, going away from us or whatever. So we're sitting there and I could hear something walking in the water, you know, that sloshing sound. But I couldn't really pinpoint where it was at. And it kept getting closer and closer. And then I just happened to look over and that sucker was standing 45 yards away coming right at us and he was scent checking the wood lot because the wind's coming out of the woods into the marsh but i'm on the side where he's not going to get my wind until he's past me you know already in bow range so (laughs) he's working down the edge of that wood line coming right at me and i thought that he was going to walk on the edge of the marsh and give me a 15 yard shot you know strong side shot but he for whatever reason, Turn came in behind me, and he was kind of trotting at a fast trot. So I come to full draw, and I tried to stop him. And of course, as soon as he stopped, he stopped behind a giant pine tree, and I didn't have a shot at him. So I've got on the left side of the pine tree, I've got maybe a foot wide gap before he's gone. Like it's just too thick to shoot. So he comes out the back side of that pine tree, and he's he's on, on the move, you know, pretty good speed. And I just it was complete instinct and i i shot and uh i thought that i hit him too far back at first but you know we got it on video and everything and uh we went back to camp and checked the footage on the computer and you could see that it just it was a perfect shot it went in right behind the shoulder so we uh went out and tracked him up and he only went about 80 yards so <clears throat> that was that was the end of that <laughs> but yeah it was yeah that was an awesome night yeah, that sounds like a super
1: cool experience. Plus, you had all the guys around there to to kind of help, help celebrate and back yeah. out, and it probably just a good, uh, good camaraderie around that whole group of guys.
2: Yeah, it's always you know more fun when you got got all the guys with you, and it, that was definitely a, a good night. And uh, we were actually planning to leave that night, so you know, of course, I had to shoot something on the last night, and then <laughs> um, threw it in the truck and ended up driving six hours back home I think I got home at like 6 a.m. the next morning so, <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was pretty rough but uh yeah it was awesome have you tried any of the meat from that uh from that stag yet it's a lot like elk um to me I mean it yeah, it's good it's very good but uh, yeah I would say it's pretty comparable to elk which makes sense like it's you know it's a miniature elk I guess <laughs> yeah
1: well, I think elk generally their diet is more grass heavy than, than it's a deer. Whereas deer, you get more of the forbs and the woody brows. And I've heard that makes elk meat more, like I I haven't eaten a ton of elk meat, but I've obviously eaten a ton of whitetail. And would you make the comparison that elk is maybe a little bit better than, than a deer or is it close enough that it's just a judgment call?
2: Uh, I wouldn't say it's better. It's a little different, but it's not like enough different to, to go one way or the other, I don't think. It's not as good as caribou, I can tell you that, but it's it's still pretty good. <laughs> caribou is tops. Yeah, caribou is super good. And I've heard moose is better than that, but I've never had moose. But uh, yeah the caribou's it's up there.
1: I had a coworker that uh dropped off some caribou and moose that I took home and tried and I thought it was, was just fine. It was ground. Um right. the caribou is well, actually, in the moose, too. They were both super lean. Like, we made spaghetti out of it. And usually, even with, with deer meat, you know, you have to drain a little bit of fat out of the pan. But there was, like, yeah, no liquid correct. that collected in the bottom of the pan at all.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny.
1: So, I wanted to ask you a couple, I guess, gear and arch-related questions, too. Because, I mean, yep. even though you... And I'm sure a lot of listeners know too. Um, obviously, a really good hunter, but you have been doing the saddle thing and have been tweaking your gear. I mean, like, you were one of the original guys, like in the tethered crew, obviously, um, and have a lot of experience kind of tinkering around with certain things, both in your setup and, and on like the bow setup for the actual hunt side of things. So, Mm -hmm. for your saddle hunting setup, are you running the one sticks and, uh, I guess a phantom or phantom elite and just a standard size predator.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So this year I used the phantom elite, um, the whole season and four, one sticks with a three step movable aider. And I found that most of the season I only needed three sticks, but there was you know a few times that I needed four, but, um, I always just carried four just to make it easy in case I needed it. But yeah. Um, one sticks, the Phantom Elite, and the, just the standard size Predator. And, yeah, that's that's pretty much it.
1: For your three-step Aider, is that one that was – did you sew that one? Did Carl make that one? Did you buy it from somebody? Uh, Carl made that one, yeah. Okay. So it's probably similar to the one that my wife has then because he made one for her too. Yeah, I've, yep. I've been kind of on the fence myself whether or not I prefer the movable Aider with those sticks. I also like the thing that Greg did, and I, I did it to my sticks too where I just made – single loop amsteel aiders on all of them and then just kind of tuck them away because then they they cinch up pretty nicely when you go to pack them and you just don't have to deal with the the whole movable aspect like you just climb just kind of a a nice you know low fiddle factor to that
2: yeah i could see it both ways i could see where that would be nice not having to worry about dropping the the aider which luckily i never did but (laughs) um but yeah, I just used the movable aider this year and it, it worked out really well. And, uh, you know, I kind of had to get away from using my spikes just because I had a cameraman most of this year. So that, uh, that played into that. And, uh, I will say that hunting with a cameraman, when you're used to hunting by yourself, it just adds like another level of complexity to everything that just makes it so much harder. That was one thing that, uh, I really had to focus on this year and, um, definitely had to make some adjustments because of that
1: yeah i would agree with you there we, we always talk about self-filming and obviously you've, you've self-filmed for probably as long as i have if not longer yeah. um, <laughs> and, and we always talk about how self-filming just adds a whole ton of complexity and makes it harder to get done what you're trying to get done but right. having a cameraman like has its own set of challenges like you mentioned like especially if you're in the same tree it's yeah. like oh well i can't like i can't shoot this way because they're in the way or like there's just twice as much movement. If I want to get to a certain, you know, shot or, or rotator on my platform, then they're going to have to move too and kind of tandem. Like there's just a bunch yeah. of logistical challenges that come with that.
2: Yeah. That's what I was struggling with in Indiana was, uh, we just couldn't find trees big enough to to hide us both. And that's what I really struggled with was, you know, having a hard time finding spots where I felt like I was close enough to, you know, get something in daylight, but you know, getting in a setup where i thought that i had a a chance of killing something when it came out so that was that was a challenge for sure
1: were you pretty much always in the same tree or did you find that sometimes you guys are just climbing separate trees that were close to one another
2: uh we did both um i definitely prefer to be in different trees that are kind of close by just so you can you know it it's hard fitting all your gear in one tree between two people, like you just have yeah. stuff hanging everywhere <laughs> so it makes it it makes it really tough, but for the most part, we were in the same tree um the night that I shot my buck, we were in the same tree, but it just happened to work out that there was a a good sized tree like right in the right spot that had good cover, so we just lucked out and found that spot yeah we my wife and I have filmed each other
1: a fair amount the last couple of years. And I I think I'd echo all of that. Uh, There was plenty of times where we would set up in different trees and that's great except for the fact that sometimes the cameraman can see stuff that the hunter can't and vice versa, but also the communication is just really difficult. Like we'll yeah. be, we'll be like, you know, angrily whispering stuff. to, like trying to over enunciate the, <laughs> your, your lip reading skills to, to right. like try and get across your point. And you'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's definitely a challenge. So, I mean, having a cameraman is nice because you can, you get a lot better footage, but man, I'm just so used to hunting by myself. I think I'd rather self-film. <laughs> yeah.
1: When, when you have self-filmed, did you have a, a particular favorite in terms of like, camera arm camera setup etc
2: um i mean mainly this past year i used the fourth arrow talon um and the sony uh the ax 700 i think yep yeah i used that and that was pretty much my my go-to um and if i'm trying to go a little bit lighter i'll use the uh just my panasonic lumix g9 and put it on a ball head and, and you know just don't use the, the fluid head but um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And then the 360 camera is, you yeah, know, that thing is a lifesaver for self filming because it just catches everything. So um, I, I think if I had like three 360 cameras, I could probably just not film anything else. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah it, 100% agree. I love the 360. It's, it's gotten me footage when nothing else has. Yeah. The only downside that I see to it it's like one of those trade-off things it's like do you want to have an easy filming experience and like not have to worry about the footage side but then your editing is gonna be a pain in the butt or right do you want to like take more skill and challenge to get good footage in the field but then it's basically just drag and drop on your timeline and you're done um yeah it's always tough to get that balance but man those I, I I can't make a decision either. I I film hunts with just the 360. and It's like man, that's so nice. Like I can just focus on hunting, especially with like a setup like like Carl had, where you just mount the 360 yeah. camera, or you can turn it on with your ring finger. It's like man, that's great. Yep. And then you get a hunt where like I have the an A7S3, and it's like you're filming deer 15 yards away working a licking branch. It's like man, I can't I can't get footage like that yeah. with the 360. So it's it's one of those never ending
2: debates internally. Yeah. Yeah. And then like toward the end of the season, you know, like I didn't film any of my rifle hunts and I really wish that I would have now because I had some really good hunts, but I was just going so far back, you know, and then having to deal with taking your pack frame. Cause you know, you're planning on packing out meat. And then how do you pack all the camera gear? It's just, it's, it's a nightmare. So I didn't end up filming anything for those hunts, which I kind of regret now, but yeah, it is what it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. I almost feel like, for hunts where you know, like you've scouted it and you'd be like, this is a spot, it's a destination spot, the scrape's right here, like this is where they're going to be when I take the shot. I'm bringing the camera arm and I'll just basically set it up pointing where I think that action's going to happen. Like I just flip the power right. button hit record. But yep. for a lot of those other hunts where it's like you don't, you don't know where you're going to set up, you don't know what kind of a challenges you're going right. to have, it might be like a weak side dominant opportunity. Man, having a couple 360 cameras just set up seems or even yeah. like a 360 in an action camera that's like forward facing on your bow or your hat. Yeah. Yeah. So at
2: least you get something, you know, you can tell a story, but you know, right. it's still not going to be the, uh you know, the the DSLR, but it's better than nothing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Maybe that's the direction I'll lean. I don't know when Sam and I are able to film ourselves, that works pretty well too. So yeah, for sure. Now on your, on your setups, I know the last couple of years, you've kind of gone a little bit heavier overall have started to move toward, like, you know, the day six broadhead style. Mm-hmm. Nice, he- like, well, it's just a relatively heavy point, but cut on contact style, good steel, thick blades. Do you still use a very similar setup kind of throughout throughout this whole year we are using a very similar thing, or did you experiment with either going up or down in a compared to what you have in the past, different broadhead styles, different fletchings?
2: Yeah, so I shot the same exact setup this year as I did last year. It just, it worked so well for me that I just, I didn't want to change anything. So, you know, I used the day six, uh, the HD 300s with, uh, there's 125 grain head, but, you know, I've got a 100 grain insert up front. So 225 up front. And I think they're coming in right at like 590 or so with a lighted knock. So, um, not a super heavy setup, but still pretty stout. And, uh, I don't think there's been a deer yet that I haven't just blown through and buried a foot in the ground on the other side. Um and the buck that I shot opening night here in West Virginia, that was like eye opening for me because he came in, was hard quartered away, like super, super hard. And on I'm on the edge of a steep bank, so he was kinda eye level with me. He had his head down feeding and he was hard quartered away at twelve yards. I mean he's point blank range. You know, he's fully relaxed, has no idea that I'm there. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to put it right through, right in front of his hip and just run it right up through him. And I hit that thing right where I was aiming, and it went all the way through him. He had his head down feeding. It went all the way up into his neck and came out behind his ear and full pasture stuck in the dirt. I could not believe. I mean, it passed through the whole deer lengthways, (laughs) went right through his heart and stuck in the ground. I couldn't believe that it did that. So oh, it just wow. shows you that it, it definitely works.
1: <laughs> that, that's something I've wondered too. Cause I've, I've had similar instances where it's like, you just, you blow through it so easy and it's like, okay, that yeah. was like, that worked perfectly nice double long shot or whatever. And the deer didn't go very far. And that's like, I wonder if, you know, you have a shot that is a little yeah. bit further back. And then I got that little, you know, that smaller fixed blade hole. You know, maybe in that scenario, I wish I had a bigger cut, but kind of that trade-off once again.
2: Yeah, and I mean, so far, I haven't had to track hardly anything. Um, Pretty much everything I've shot has died in sight or just out of sight. So there hasn't been any long blood trails. Um, It's definitely 50-50 on how much blood's getting on the ground. Like some of them, it's just, you know, you could follow it, almost running it so good but then other ones there's nothing so it's just really dependent on the hit with those small cut on contact heads but um as far as penetration goes uh, it you really can't beat them
1: yeah was it the standard size day six evo you're using or the xl
2: yeah just the standard size okay
1: and then zinger still for fletchings
2: yeah the gen tube zingers um yeah, those worked really well for me this year. Um, yeah, I think I use the same the same arrow for I think every kill, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> well, that's that's really cool.
1: And and now you've probably gotten to the point of that setup where it's like you're you're less likely and you have less desire to maybe tinker with that because you every kill you get, it's
2: more and more confidence in that setup. Yeah and my wife and my son are shooting my same arrows. Like we all shoot the same exact setup. So it just makes my life easier. Like we don't have to shoot three different setups and broadheads and all that. So, you know, they're shooting relatively light poundage, like right at 50 pounds. And, uh, both the deer that they shot were a little bit far forward, but punched right through the shoulder blade and out the other side, you know, not a full pass through, but you know, the, the blade made it to like the hide on the other side. So, um, but yeah, both those deer, you know, were dead in you know, 50 yards, 60 yards. So even on a lighter setup, that heavier arrows really, uh, worked well for that.
1: Yeah. Sam's set up too. I mean, she's shooting just a hair over 40 pounds a 25 inch draw and mm-hmm. both the deer she shot so far, we've, you know, pulled that arrow six inches out of the dirt. Yeah. But, but even, Even with that, and and she's, both the deer she shot, she just hit them perfect. You know, just nothing but but ribs and just flies right through. But we've talked about bumping her up, because she was shooting a micro diameter with the Valkyries, bumping her up to like a 204 size arrow and using either like the Day6 or the Iron Will heads. Um, Just the lighted knocks. it seems like in that size, at least from what I've tried, are a little bit more durable. And like you said, then we're just buying one broadhead for the both of us.
2: Yep. Yeah, it simplifies things a little bit, and it definitely works out really well. And you know, that heavier arrow with a lighter weight bow, like they make hardly no noise at all. Know, it's so, so quiet. quiet; like it's just ridiculous how quiet those setups are.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, and that once you shot in North Dakota last year, the deer didn't even didn't even react yeah. until the arrow was through it. Yeah, yeah,
2: I remember that video. That thing just it didn't it was effortless, just right through it. <laughs> Really cool. Well, cool, man.
1: Uh, I appreciate you sharing your your season and the details and and of course, I'm always interested in all the you know mental thought process that goes behind it. So, yeah. if people want to see some videos of the hunts that we talked about, I think everything's up on the tethered YouTube channel by the time this launches. From at least this past, yeah, past much. couple seasons.
2: Yeah, everything's on the Tethered Nation uh, YouTube page. Uh, my Instagram's jshafe 30 um, You know, if you want to see pictures of all these deer and critters and all that, they're all on there. So check them out. And yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It's always, always fun, you know, getting to relive the, the season. So I appreciate it.